0: Hello and welcome to Public Key, the podcast from Chainalysis. I'm your host, Ian Andrews. If you're a regular listener to this show, you've almost certainly heard me discuss pig butchering before. This is a complex financial crime often involving well-organized overseas syndicates armed with sophisticated psychological playbooks designed to separate you from your money. Some estimates suggest billions of dollars are lost per year into these types of schemes. So in this episode, I get the chance to speak with someone who is taking action to protect at-risk consumers and stop these criminals, Detective Matthew Hogan of the Connecticut State Police. Detective Hogan talks about the evolution of crypto scams, the challenges that law enforcement faces in investigating these cases, and how he and colleagues were able to get landmark legislation passed in Connecticut that holds crypto ATM operators responsible for illicit activities conducted via their machines and improves consumer protections. Detective Hogan also shares his experiences in conversing with scammers to gather evidence and better protect consumers, while highlighting the importance of collaboration between law enforcement agencies and crypto exchanges. After the episode, if you're interested to learn more about pig butchering, head down to the show notes for links to our past podcasts on this topic. And check out Detective Hogan's LinkedIn, where he regularly posts on the topic of financial crime. Hey, everyone, welcome back to another episode of Public Key. This is your host, Ian Andrews. Today we're going to talk financial crime, we're going to talk pig butchering. I'm joined by one of the experts, Detective Matthew Hogan from the Connecticut State Police. Matt, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me Ian, I'm excited to be here.
0: You know what, before we jump in to the pig butchering details, I've got to ask you about the photo over your shoulder here. You're shaking hands with somebody famous. Tell us about that photo.
1: This is the world famous Frank Abagnale Jr. from Catch Me If You Can, if you haven't seen the movie or read the book. I got to meet him in person at uh, one of his talks. It was a fantastic opportunity.
0: For people that haven't seen the movie or the book, Frank was kind of the, the original financial fraudster, I think. Prolific in his check passing schemes, I guess, is what he was most known for. He was a check
1: kiter, yeah. I forgot how many millions of dollars he did within his uh, time frame as a juvenile around the country. And then into. <laughs> he wound up getting caught in France.
0: Well, and I think it's an interesting segue into the episode, right? Because a lot of the the work that you do today is the modern day equivalent of check kiting, right? It's all sorts of crypto scams and SIM stealing and things like that. Tell us a little bit about what you spend your time on at the Connecticut State Police.
1: So I, th- I think what we've mostly noticed is that the type of scams haven't changed that much. It's mostly the vehicle that they've used, right? So they originally they were using you know checks or domestic wire transfers, but as the proliferation of crypto came about, they started using that as the method to move their money and kind of launder.
0: When was the first time you saw a cryptocurrency in a case? Do you remember? I
1: want to say probably 2017. Something came through, and we weren't you know ready for it yet. Obviously, I had actually gone to a. Uh, the National Computer Forensic Institute down in Alabama and took their crypto course. So I had an understanding of it at the time, but it was so new in our agency and just in law enforcement in general that it was kind of one of those things where you're like, especially at the state level and local, like you're not really seeing these cases. It was usually the feds getting them. So we saw it yeah. come in and we're like, I don't know what to do with this.
0: And what, what did you do? So you saw it come in and then what happened next?
1: I actually had software through uh, NCFI at the time, so I was trying to trace it out with the software that we were, we were acquired at that point for free through the, the training. And I didn't know what to do with it once I traced it. You're like, we're, now now, <laughs> do I, what do I do? I found it goes someplace. I'm not sure if I'm yeah. even tracing it the right way. Yeah. You know, you're like, hey, I, I did what I could with it and it's t- attached to this uh, BC1Q and, and there we go.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I'm going to take a guess based on following you on LinkedIn for a while that you've made some progress in your level level of sophistication, because you've made some some big impact for victims out there. Talk about maybe the evolution from that first case, where you're not even sure if you're tracing it right, to capabilities that you have today.
1: It was an interesting timing. My partner, Mike Krabowski, and I were kind of just talking, and we had been discussing the issue of crypto, and we were like, you know, we need to really try and do something about this. You know, our agency isn't doing anything with it currently. We need to try and get up to speed with it. So we took the bull by the horns, literally, and didn't get in trouble for it. But, you know, we approached our command staff like, hey, we really need to address this. And we were lucky enough that our command staff here at our agency was open to the idea. So we just started talking to analysis and other companies and talking to experts in the field, IRSCI guys, FBI, U.S. Secret Service, marshals. And we're like, hey, what are you guys doing with this? How should we start building our program? So they kind of gave us like the, you know, the foundation and we just were looking at how our agency was using it and what we could do. So, and partnering yeah. with you guys was a big part of that.
0: I mentioned I've been following you on LinkedIn. One of your posts recently, you mentioned that you had finally gotten one of these texts, the wrong number texts that start mm. the pig butchering engagement. i waiting and That's right, and you, you said in the post that you were starting to converse with the subject and you were gonna use it basically as a evidence gathering tactic. Give us the follow-up, because it's been a few months. How far did you get in the conversation?
1: So it, it was really interesting because you know, really, I wanted to use it as a learning experience, right? You want to really understand how to communicate with the victims, so you can really get the feel for how these people are getting scammed, right? Because you hear it all the time, people will go, "How can you fall for such a thing?" Right? But over the course of several months, you can really understand, that, you know, they're texting you throughout the day, you know, and they'll end, it, end conversations with, uh, you know, sweetheart and stuff like that. So they're really trying to build that relationship. And after about a little over a month, I started getting frustrated with it, so I just persisted, like, "Hey, I just you, know, you mentioned gold a couple times uh, in investing in gold. How do we go about?" doing that because I'm kind of curious so that spun the conversation and she wound up giving me what I wanted which was the investment sites through the exchanges that they were using it was called FX6 which is an app on the Apple platform and they wanted me to, you know, go through a couple of, of DeFi web wallets in order to transact on there, and she was giving me a how-to because how I was you know, playing dumb. I don't know what Bitcoin is, how does it work? It was really, actually, honestly, a lot of fun. Try not to be make fun of it because you know your victims go through that kind of stuff, but it was just a great learning experience, listening to her the communication and understanding the scam.
0: The scammer wanted you to actually download an app that was in the app store? Yeah, she told me
1: to go wow. to a US-based exchange, open an account, explain that to me. And then uh, once I got there, she wanted me to go to another exchange and basically connect the wallets and then transact my money from my FI to my current exchange and then send to my DeFi wallet, the other exchange. And then on that platform, you could use the web browser to search for, for the FX6. And then search there. So it actually was interesting because then I did an IC3 search for that particular browser, the FX6, and I found a ton of other victims that were all victimized by the same FX6 account.
0: I'm curious when you find something like that. Obviously, you've got the resources of law enforcement at your disposal. You collaborate with the Secret Service and the FBI, as you mentioned. Like, is there opportunity or a path to take down FX6? Does that even make sense in terms of pursuing the criminal element behind some of of these
1: I think it does, but the problem with a lot of them are you know there's one right behind the next one, right? So yeah. once this one gets shut down, they already have a, a back one ready to rock and roll. So our goal is to just like Aaron West says, you know, to freeze, seize, and disrupt, right? We, we want to educate yeah. and disrupt. So I, I really want to disrupt as best I can, and that's definitely a methodology to it. So if we can get to that point, it'd be great because there are enough victims out there for FX6 for sure.
0: I'm curious, have you seen from a victim standpoint? I think when I first started learning about pig butchering last year, it seemed like most of the criminals were operating out of Southeast Asia. So Myanmar, Cambodia and Laos seem to be the concentration. But more recently, I've heard that there's actually quite a bit of domestic activity. Our friends north of the border in Canada, they were actually able to trace funds to a criminal organization operating out of Montreal. You know, they were running kind of an elderly scam, pig butchering methodology involving crypto. So I'm curious, are you seeing this in Connecticut as well? Is it moving domestic or you feel like you're primarily still seeing criminals operating from offshore?
1: The pig butchering scams are always offshore from what we're seeing. When we're looking at domestic side, it's more so like PII or cards or stuff like that. So it's interesting, we'll have like a case that has nothing to do with crypto. But as you dig deeper, you wind up finding that there is somehow a portion of it that is crypto related. So they're using it as a way to obfuscate their money or something.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, one of the things that you championed was legislation that was recently passed in Connecticut that deals with crypto kiosks. Can you talk a little bit about what you worked on there and what the implications are?
1: We started to recognize, obviously, there's been an issue with the kiosk ATM machines involving crypto scams with the elderly and older population, and specifically in Connecticut. Obviously, so we tried to address it in some manner. So I actually reached out to some of our partners with the ARP, our Coalition of Elder Justice in Connecticut, and we started just kind of discussing what we could do to really fix that problem as best we could because it's on more of a regulation side, right? So it's a civil issue, not so much criminal. That the regulations that we uh, are we working on and. What we attempted to do was we wanted to get the ATMs under a money transmitter license so that in Connecticut, they have to be following the same regulations as regular, a regular ATM machine would. That was part of the issue was getting the definition changed, uh, which we were able to do and get them as a money transmitter. And some of the other things that we wanted to do were work on the transaction limits. We wanted to work on, obviously, the, the biggest problem with autos is, is the, the fees, right? That you're, you're talking a victim gets between 5 and 20% of a fee. So if they're sending Bitcoin to their scammer, they're getting charged, say, you know 35000 for a $20,000 Bitcoin. So there's a huge markup. If we, so if we do recover assets for them, they're already yeah. going to be at a loss because of the yeah. fees that they're getting charged. So those are some of the big issues we we're trying to accomplish.
0: Making sure that the operators aren't profiting off the scam activities right. seems like a great goal. One of the provisions in the bill that surprised me a little bit is this right of refund that you're able to get in the, in the legislation. I was curious about how that works practically because obviously there's not a reverse transaction in crypto like there is in the traditional banking system.
1: It was interesting. I didn't like include that into our original draft for for what we were attempting to do because we know that that's not an option really for crypto. And then it's funny too because if you read the full law. There's the section where it tells you that it's non refundable, but then later on the statute, it talks about how they're requiring within 72 hours at the owner's and operator's their own expense to refund. And there's like two caveats there where they say if the customer first transaction and if the wallet or exchange is outside the US. So those are like two big variables, obviously. I'm curious myself how they're going to. That.
0: I like the idea of putting a penalty on the operator when you know maybe they're allowing transactions that are somewhat obviously fraudulent. Like that first transaction idea, to me, actually sounded really novel. I feel like there could be some really positive impact from that approach.
1: The way I originally worded it was I, I was trying to target the older community, so per definition, that's sixty plus in Connecticut. And what we wanted to do was basically we want these companies to have to use KYC. So when that that company determines that that user is 60 plus, we want them to immediately freeze that transaction prior to even being sent. We want them to verify the transaction on the phone before it occurs.
0: I've actually had this conversation with some of our customers who operate crypto exchanges as well, that there's an opportunity to sniff out scams, even when the address that maybe someone's requesting a withdrawal to isn't an obvious scam or an existing known scam. You know, if you have a customer that just signed up, first time depositing fiat into an exchange, just bought crypto, and you've KYC'd them, and they fit a particular demographic profile. File, elderly being one of the, you know, more likely to be in a victim of a scam, obviously, maybe put a limit on that withdrawal, a time lock on it, or, you know, just additional verification checks to protect people that are more likely to be victims, right?
1: That's our goal. And the part we're happy about is we got something on paper, right? So we, we yeah. got some changes made, and this is just gonna be a, an opportunity for us to kind of build off of this point. So we have really good legislators that were bipartisan that wanted to work on this with us, and we're really yeah. happy about that. So we're hoping that we can make some more changes in the future.
0: That's great. I know that, like Chainalysis has some ATM operators that actually use our transaction monitoring solution that are MSB licensed. So I don't want to paint the entire category as being, oh, this is just a you know mechanism for money laundering. But there's also a lot of operators out there that don't do that do you have any sense of how many atms or kiosks are now operating in connecticut
1: it almost changes daily it seems Uh, at at last count i want to say there was about 480 ish that changed with the coin of america obviously when that happened so the couple we lost a bunch from that but i want to say about 480 ish and like you said a bunch of them are better companies right we deal with them via email a lot of times and they're willing to help us so yeah you can't broad brush them
0: the scam that I'm imagining here that probably has a nexus around these ATMs is like my grandparents have gotten phone calls, you know, from somebody that's impersonating me saying, you know, Ian's been in a wreck, he's at the hospital, you need to send funds right now so we can put him into surgery, or Ian was got arrested for DUI if you don't send us money immediately. <laughs> he's going to get sent to jail. You need to bond him out. And fortunately, my grandparents were savvy enough to know call me before sending money anywhere. And I answer the phone and they're like, "Hey, are you in jail?" And I'm like, "No." <laughs> so they've never fallen victim to it. But I I've always assumed that the like the next step in that, had they had they taken the bait, would be directions to go buy gift cards or go find one of these crypto ATMs and send somebody money. Is that what you see usually? 100%. Yeah, there
1: there's definitely a uh, like like we said earlier the fraud hasn't really changed that much, right? Originally, the grandparents' scam was, hey, put $100,000 in a shoebox, wrap it in duct tape, cover it in newspaper, mail it to this obscure address in Pennsylvania, and then you're, that'll be your bond money, right? Now that changes, yeah. now you go to a crypto ATM machine and put some yeah. ca- cash in and do it that way. So it hasn't, really hasn't changed much, it's just they're using a the vehicle, right?
0: You did mention in the posts on this act concerning digital assets that there were a couple of things that didn't make it into the final text of the bill. What were some of the provisions you were hoping to get in there that didn't didn't make it through the legislative process? You
1: sniffed out the first one right away. So the first one was that idea of having a transaction limit for a specific community of people who are more likely to. Specific- uh, victimized, so we wanted that sixty plus to be uh, a target for blocking scams, and so that that provision got modified to this new one where they're basically saying you know seventy two hour transaction return. That was one of them. And The other one was the, the dollar limit. I wanted it to be around five hundred dollars. I know Fats has there about is about a thousand for the travel rule, so I was trying to keep it within that range of what what FATF recommends because obviously there's a coalition of people who believe in that in that dollar amount and. From what we're seeing, a lot of the victims here, you know, $2,500 is a lot of money for some elder community. And then if you talk daily limits, right now we're talking $2,500 a day, that could be a lot. So I wanted that dollar limit lower to basically create more of an issue for the scammer, right? The more like chances that that victim has to go to the ATM machine to make these transfers, the more likely they're going to go, wait a minute, I think I'm getting scammed. So trying to lower that transaction was a big one I wanted to fix.
0: I think most normal ATMs, you have a a transaction limit of about $500 a day in cash in the US, right? So it seems like getting consistent with that would have been the target. It's interesting they they ended up with a higher number for the Crypto ATMs.
1: My other thought was, if I'm going to be transacting $2,500, why don't I just go to Coinbase or Kraken and do a transaction right. through my, my FI in that way? Why do I need to go to an ATM machine?
0: Once the act has been passed, is it fully implemented now? Are you seeing seeing any benefits from it um, in your day-to-day?
1: I think it's going to actually take effect October one. So okay. we'll see some changes now, but I, I don't know. I guess the problem really is uh, how quickly these institutions and these companies can really get on board with what the, the recommendations are from the regulations. So I think that there's going to be some lag with that, but I'm hoping that you know the, the companies that are... Uh, More legitimate, probably be able to pick up the pace a lot faster with them.
0: Do you see that being widely divergent across the the crypto ecosystem, where some organizations happy to collaborate with law enforcement and others kind of just never engage?
1: Yeah, it's it's prolific. We can really see such drastic change going from specific exchanges to exchanges. We know which ones when it goes to a certain exchange, we're like, oh, dead end. And it's very frustrating because we obviously want to do the best we can for our victims here. And if it goes to these certain exchanges that aren't accepting KYC or responding to US law enforcement, it really puts a hand on our investigations.
0: Yeah. It seems like in my time at Chainalysis, so kind of two and a half years in, there's been a market trend from not only shifting towards KYC, but also eagerness to collaborate with law enforcement. I mean, we've seen a lot of exchanges kind of hiring up investigative teams who are big global actions, not just on scam activity, but on counterterrorist financing and some of these other CSAM, where it seems like there's collaboration, at least for me as an outsider. I'm curious if you feel that from a, a law enforcement perspective.
1: We do. I think we're recognized, or at least these companies recognize, hey, if I want to be regulated appropriately by the U.S. or the U.K. or wherever, they need to have proper measures in place and have those opportunities to have KYC and AML and PSA regulations properly in place. So we're, we're definitely seeing it back in and i follow the same stuff i think you do so we're, we're seeing like the, these guys get hired you know irsci i mean if you, if you work there your <laughs> chances you get hired some places is, is pretty good at this point I think, so yeah
0: you know that actually brings up an interesting topic too is staffing so you talk about the guys at irsci that are now kind of leading investigative teams at some of the big exchanges out there how is your ability to hire and recruit into your organization with the expertise you need to really work these type of cases?
1: You know, recruiting for law enforcement is such a challenge. There's so many nuances to it these days, and I think the overall View of law enforcement has changed so much the public eye to the negative, unfortunately, that it really has created a challenge for us. We, we don't have the opportunity to really grab hold of candidates that have an expertise in maybe crypto or even financial crimes to that matter. So it's definitely been a, a challenge for us to fill classes as a whole, even and that's nationwide. That's not just us at our agency. I think that getting out there, getting messages like this one out to the public saying, Hey, listen, we're we're really trying to do our best here to you know, fight crime and be good candidates that want to do it for the right reasons. So.
0: If I'm interested to join your team, I'm like, hey, I want to go protect people, I wanna help, you know, serve serve the community. I don't know anything about crypto. Do you guys have the capacity to train people up and get them to where they'd be effective, you know, collaborating with you on some of these financial crimes cases?
1: Yeah, I think we're there. Myself and Mike who I mentioned my my partner in this. Uh, we've been lucky enough with our command staff's uh, approval to really go out and train even local law enforcement here in Connecticut. So we've we've been out and doing trainings as best we can to, to our own capacity because we're we're not experts by any means, but we're at least doing it. So if someone were to come to our agency and did express an interest, we would definitely you know t- take that full you know full on and
0: help yeah. It. There we go. That's a career path, right? Join uh, your organization, get smart on cryptocurrency, work some cases. Is hard for a couple years, right? And then you've got a potential uh, career path. We're going to get some people interested, I feel. When we had my colleague, Joe Sarr, who's uh reserve detective still, but you know former officer in Southern California on the podcast last year. And he talked about his experience. First time he heard about crypto, I think he was getting his MBA and some of his classmates started telling him about Bitcoin back in 2016, 2017. And his initial reaction was, Oh, there's got to be criminals using this and so he went back to his went back to his uh colleagues in the police department and said guys we got to go look at this because i think the folks we're chasing are probably involved here somehow and his comment was at the time he was actually kind of laughed out of the room they were like that's not what we do i'm curious if you initially met similar kind of reception when you first started looking at crypto and and has that improved or changed over time
1: It's definitely improved over time. I think media obviously helps with that because they're pushing the message out there that people are taking on more. But yeah, 100% originally. Even now we still get it occasionally. You go to like a, a, a local PD as more world. They're like, oh, that's played yeah. money. And we don't deal with it. But we've seen people ex- are accepting it more and more enforcement now and, and yeah. getting, getting some help now. So it's, it's been a good learning experience for everyone.
0: Talking about local PD, our friends in Calgary, they just launched this initiative to really get a training academy going. I think it's open actually to people not just in Canadian police forces, but all, all across North America. They're hoping to offer training in this area because one of the things they observed was if you're a victim of one of these crimes, it's hard to come forward, right? You're embarrassed. Once you realize you've been scammed, you've lost money and you don't really want to talk about it. So it takes a lot of guts even to come to the police. And then unfortunately, you know, if you walk into your local police precinct, person sitting at the front desk may think crypto is ridiculous or that it's your fault or, you know, have some perspective or we're, we're just think it's impossible to solve. Like once you've sent the money, there's no chance of getting it back. And so they seem to have put a big emphasis on let's make sure that at the very front lines at the local level, we have some experts that can intake these cases effectively and then hand them off to the people that can actually do tracing and file a fund seizure Are anything similar happening in Connecticut. Have you attempted to get that local level up to similar ability?
1: That was our goal because the reality is my buddy and I are the only two doing it for Connecticut. And this isn't our full-time job. We have other responsibilities that are our actual cases that we work. This is something we've taken on because we've noticed so much. So our goal was to educate as many people as we could. So our our model basically is now, which we've changed, once they get a case from local PD, we'll actually go to them show them the ropes of how to write the search once appropriately, show them how to open source things, and then kind of give them the ball. We'll give them the prop, the policy and paperwork to do the product themselves, hopes that they can start their own programs internally
0: there. That's amazing. I mean, this is something that I'm pretty passionate about. It's like, how can we get everyone that may be on the receiving end of a, a victim of one of these cases to have at least a baseline knowledge of... Okay, what can be done with crypto? What are the indicators that maybe there's a path to retrieving some of these funds and, and make sure that we're getting those reports into the hands of people that have the ability to take action as quickly as possible? Because it seems like time is of the essence here too, right? The key
1: to all this is time. The time to, to trace is, is 100% to find those assets. Because the biggest problem we're seeing, especially with pig butchering, is the delay in reporting, right? So you have delay of the victim line report because they they are, you know they feel that reluctance uh, embarrassment. But then you also have law enforcement going, who do I give this to? So there's this extended time delay. It's, it's challenge.
0: And the the more time that's elapsed, the more likely that the funds have left an exchange that's likely to respond to a subpoena and they're out into the ether somewhere. 100%. We're talking
1: days or weeks and, and that money's
0: gone. I'm curious, you know, we've been really focused on crypto, obviously, since that's the topic of this podcast. But I'm imagining you see other types of financial crimes, scams, frauds. What what else is is keeping you busy these days?
1: It seems like people have watched this movie recently because there has been an uptake for sure in check frauds. You know, the mail theft has been a huge thing, and they're they're doing it for check thefts. They're doing robberies for the uh, U.S. postal uh, arrow keys. So that's probably the biggest that we're noticing is a lot of yeah. check fraud popping back up. But then there's also a new account fraud with, with credit card accounts or with banks. We've seen some home equity line of credit frauds that are occurring. So there's a, definitely a wide variety. I think what happens is scammers recognize people paying attention to certain like technological scams, and we're like so laser focused on trying to figure it out that they go old school and go yeah. back to something like he's been doing for, you know, or was doing for like 10, yeah. two years. And they're like, oh, no one's paying attention to this right now. Let's start doing this again.
0: I'm actually blown away that it's going back to check fraud because I'm trying to think the last time that I wrote or received a check. Like, it's <laughs> right. a pretty rare thing, right? Right. I suppose maybe that's not true for everybody, but that's really interesting. I do know, though, in my neighborhood, the Postal Service actually has taped over a lot of those blue boxes that are on the corner and basically said, don't use these anymore because we had a rash of thefts. So I think that's what you were talking about with the arrow keys, right? Yes. This is how you can open the mailbox, right? All the
1: mailboxes, yeah. So they've done a really good job of trying to prevent them as best they can. They've changed boxes out to stop the phishing. They're doing the best they can to model keys and stuff like that, but it's been a, a lot of work for them to do.
0: And so then you steal the mail, you get somebody's identity or an application form for a, a like a home equity line of credit or a credit mm-hmm. card, and then you just go open that up, run with the cash before someone even notices that funds are being drawn down against. Or,
1: them. Yeah, they're getting a check and right out of the mail. They just wash the check.
0: Man, criminals are innovative. If we get these people focused on doing good it's instead of good. bad. Right. <laughs> Exactly. Our mutual friend, Erin West, you mentioned her earlier. She's got the React task force happening. And I know there's some collaboration that happens between the states. Can you talk a little bit about like, I think one of the biggest challenges in all fraud and in particular with crypto is that it's global in nature, right? It doesn't respect our nice state boundaries or even our our (laughs) national borders. Like crypto doesn't care. No. How do you work across state lines with you know federal jurisdiction or other states when you see these types of cases? Like, Is there anything that we can suggest or do to, to improve that collaboration?
1: I really thank God for Erin West. She's been such a bull in this area. She's gotten the message out and she is really trying her best to educate the masses. And that's really the key to all this, I think. And if we can just educate across the board, because the problem we talk about is time, right? Delay in time. So if we can get those smaller PDs educated on this and get the message out and then they can educate their communities on it, that's really what the key is to all this is getting that message to, to the civilians.
0: Well, Matthew, this has been an awesome conversation. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me. Hey there. Thanks for listening to another episode. Our team's been working hard to make our content available on all the major platforms. So right now, take out your phone, head over to your favorite social media app, you can subscribe to our new TikTok, our revamped YouTube, you can sign up for our LinkedIn newsletter, and of course, follow us on Twitter or Telegram. Just search for at Chainalysis. Now, before you go, I'm excited to announce that Chainalysis has entered into a partnership with HyperNative in order to provide Web3 participants a comprehensive solution for real-time security detection, prevention, and incident response capabilities as a fully integrated solution. In the current landscape, a mere audit process is insufficient. We've covered that a lot on this podcast. Web3 applications and protocols operate in a highly adversarial environment with malicious actors constantly seeking to exploit vulnerabilities for financial gain. With the Chainalysis crypto incident response, we have the expertise and the investigative capabilities needed to recover lost funds in the event of an incident such as a cyber attack. And we're excited to combine that protection with HyperNative's proactive detection capabilities to identify any malicious activity and substantially increase the chances of preventing the attack in the first place, or in the worst case scenario, being quicker to recover stolen funds. This integration is only the first step in the partnership, and our goal is to create a safer Web3 ecosystem for all participants. Check out the link in the show notes to see the full details.